1: The religion of Islam is as diverse as any other religion. The many ways that Muslims have and still do conceptualize and understand their religion is after all what makes the religion what it is. And among the many schools and branches of Islam, one of the most influential and significant in history have been the group known as the Ismailis. Being the second largest branch of Shi'i Islam, to be precise, the Ismailis have often received a lot of criticism from other Muslims, from Sunnis as well as Shi'is, but a lot of these uh, criticisms are often based on huge misrepresentations and misunderstandings. So today we're instead going to attempt a general overview of the Ismailis, both on their own terms, but also on the terms of modern historical scholarship. So, who then are the Ismailis? Islam is often described as being divided into three very general branches. The Sunni, Shia, and sometimes the Ibadi. This division can be somewhat anachronistic, especially when talking about the earliest periods of Islamic history, but it can help us identify some major historical movements. And the Ismailis are Shi'i Muslims. They are the second largest branch of Shi'ism generally and have been very significant both on an intellectual slash religious and political level historically and today. Producing some of the greatest philosophers and scholars in Muslim history, as well as ruling some of the largest empires, the Ismailis have shaped the so-called Islamic world to a major degree. In general terms, Ismaili Shi'ism can be characterized as an esoteric movement within Islam. On both doctrinal and practical levels, they have emphasized a certain level of esotericism, as we will see, and their theological and philosophical ideas very strongly adopted a neoplatonic model in particular. We will get to all of this fascinating stuff in due time, but first we need to cover the basics. Where do the Ismailis come from, and what is their history? Again, the Ismailis are Shi'i Muslims. Shi'ism itself is divided into various branches and schools that can differ on a number of points. The even more general division of Islam into Sunni and Shia has, at its core, a debate over authority. They all believe in the prophecy of Muhammad and the revelation of the Quran, but after the Prophet died, who was supposed to succeed him and in what way? The group that would later come to be known as Sunni believed that political authority was passed on to chosen members of Muhammad's community, the khulafa, or caliphs, and eventually accepted as righteous, so-called the first four, Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, and Ali. Later caliphates, like the Umayyads and Abbasids, were often considered legitimate leaders as representatives of the Prophet and God, but are not revered in the same way as the first four. In terms of religious or spiritual authority, the Sunnis would come to recognize the community of scholars, the so-called ulama, as a source of authority on law and belief, as well as the Sufi sheikhs and saints, especially in later periods. The Shia had a different view. Instead, they held that authority to lead the community was passed down in the Prophet's family. First, in a more general sense of being part of the Hashimi clan, but later becoming narrowed down specifically to the Alid family line, the progeny of Muhammad's daughter Fatima and Ali, his cousin. Ali became the first so-called imam of the Shi'is and plays an enormous role in their theology and doctrines. The title of Imam, or rightful leader, was then passed down from Ali to his son Hassan, then his brother Hussein, and then continued in a line of patrilineal succession. In the earliest period, there were many debates around rightful authority in the Muslim community. We can in no way talk about a simple Shia-Sunni divide at this time, these communities as fixed identities wouldn't be formulated until many centuries later. Instead, there were many different claimants to authority, both politically and religiously, some of whom legitimized their rules simply on power or other factors, while others, like the Alids for example, did so based on their direct familial connection to the Prophet. Early Shiism is a difficult topic with many competing accounts, but it seems that it was in many ways a kind of messianic movement. Many imams, so sons of Ali and their sons and their sons, etc., who claimed authority and gained followers. But according to later established Shia doctrine, there is a certain line of imams that is considered correct or authoritative. Any later division of Shi'ism into further branches is determined by which line of imams a certain community sees as true or legitimate. In Shi'ism, there has to always be an imam in the world, a person who has been given the knowledge or ilm to interpret the Qur'an and sunnah of the Prophet in the correct way and adapt it to new situations and times. The imam is given this knowledge by the previous imam, his father, who received it from the imam before him, and so on. This direct appointment of the new imam by the previous one, the continuing of the line of imams, is called nas and is central to Shia belief. The Ahl al-Bayt, or family of the Prophet Muhammad, has been given the role to lead his community through their intimate and direct knowledge of the essence of the Quranic message. It's not that the Qur'an is incomplete, per se, but the Qur'an requires there to be an imam who has the gnostic or infallible knowledge of its meaning so that he can interpret it for the Muslims. The Shi'is criticized their proto-Sunni counterparts for relying too much on their own minds and their own rational thoughts in interpreting and understanding religion, which led to division and confusion regarding beliefs and practices. Instead, to Shi'is, there is always an imam, a possessor of full knowledge, who has the authority to interpret the religion and to adapt it to new times and circumstances. And according to the major schools, there is always only one imam at any given time. So the religious and spiritual essence of Islam always revolve around a single pole, a single point that determines all other points and aspects. And this is true for all prophetic cycles. Earlier prophets like Moses or Jesus also had imams that succeeded them. There simply cannot be any religion without an imam to lead them. The Shi'is will even say that there can't be a time at all when there is no imam, and that even if there are only two people left alive in the world, one of them will be the imam. Thus, this doctrine of the Imamate, so-called, is at the core of all Shia belief and spirituality. It is the main point that distinguishes them from the Sunnis, even though they have developed many other unique features and differences over the years too. And again, the main difference between different branches of Shi'ism is that they accept different lines of Imams as correct. The two largest branches, the Twelver or Ethna Ashari and the Ismailis, all agree on the first six Imams. Ali, the son-in-law and cousin of the Prophet, is the first Imam. He was followed by his son Hassan. The imamate was then inherited by his brother, Ali's other son, Hussain. After Hussain was martyred in the Battle of Karbala in 680, and even that would become a central aspect of Shia consciousness and belief later on, his son Ali Zayn al abidin became the next imam, followed by his son Muhammad al-Baqir, and finally the last imam that they all accept as canonical is Jafar al-Sadiq. Ja'far al-Sadiq is one of the most significant of the Imams regardless of which branch of Shiism you are talking about and for various reasons. The Imams in general are thought to be the carriers and source for much of Islamic esotericism and even occultism sometimes, and Ja'far plays a major role here, but also of course in the succession of Imams. Because after his death there appeared two different groups, one who considered Ja'far's older son Ismail to be the rightful successor and another group that didn't, although sources on both sides indicate that he had indeed been chosen as the next imam, there's disputes over this. Because Ismail had reportedly died before his father, the other group instead considered the younger son, Musa al-Kazim, to be the next imam, and they eventually became known as the Twelver or Ithna'ashari Shiites, which we have already dedicated a full episode to. The first group, though, still believed that Ismail had been the true successor to Jafar al-Sadiq since he had been appointed the next imam by his father, and they argued the imams are, after all, infallible, so he wouldn't make a mistake like that. They thus looked to Ismail's living son, Muhammad ibn Ismail, as the next imam that had been chosen by Ismail before his death. This general group is the one that became known as the Ismailis, right, because they are named after Ismail, the oldest son of Jafar al-Sadiq. And they, of course, as the title suggests, will be the main focus of this episode. The lines of imams and different branches of Shi'ism often get very complicated and difficult, and this is true of Ismailism as well. Even in this earliest period, there were many different variants of Ismail's followers. Some believed that Muhammad ibn Ismail had gone into occultation and that he was the coming Mahdi. Others believe that there were hereditary imams that followed him, imams who had simply gone into hiding because of the persecution from the Abbasid caliphs. The first of these groups are often known as the Seveners, and would eventually turn into groups like the famous Karmatians, a revolutionary group who created a kind of state in eastern Arabia and, during the 9th and 10th centuries, strongly opposed the Abbasid regime by, among other things, and very controversially, sacking the city of Mecca and stealing the black stone from the Kaaba. This is a very interesting and significant episode, of course, but we should remember that the Karmatians do not represent the majority of the proto-Ismailis at the time, not even all so-called seveners um, regarded them as legitimate or accepted them, so to say. But this is a very significant and important uh, episode in the early history of Islam, and of course also in Ismailism to a certain degree. And it was indeed another group of Ismailis that would prove most successful namely the group who believed that the imams succeeding Muhammad ibn Ismail were still alive. Because in 899, one of the central leaders of the Ismaili community in Syria, Ali ibn al hussein publicly emerged to claim his identity as the actual imam, the hereditary successor to Muhammad ibn Ismail and the rest, thus making him the 11th imam of the Ismailis. It is this Imam, who later went under the name Abdullah al-Mahdi Billah, that subsequently founded the Fatimid Empire, which would come to rule major portions of the Islamic world from their base in Egypt, thus making Ismaili Shiism a major player on the political scene. The major impact of the Fatimids made sure that it was their Ismailism that became the dominant for the rest of history. During the rule of this major empire, the caliphs, or political leaders, were also the imams of the Ismailis, giving them a kind of double title of caliph imams. So they were both the political leaders of a vast empire, the Fatimid Caliphate of Fatimid Empire, but also the spiritual pole of Ismailism at the time, right? the highest spiritual and religious leader to the Ismaili community. So they were the most important person in the world in two respects. The Ismailis have always been very active in the intellectual sphere, producing some really significant and great thinkers in history, um, developing many uh, groundbreaking and significant ideas in the history of Islamic thought, and this early period is no different. As the Fatimid Caliphate grew in size and the Caliph Imams became very powerful, they sent out missionaries and scholars to spread the Ismaili creed producing figures like Abu Ya'qub al-Sijistani, Hamid al-Din Kirmani, and Nasir Khusro. Most scholars today also agree that the mysterious anonymous group known as the Ikhwan al-Safah, the Brethren of Purity, were Ismaili Shiites, although they might have belonged to the Severner group that deny the Fatimids' claim to the Imamids, but this is still uncertain. But because their major text, the so-called Epistles of the Brethren of Purity, was so popular and influential for much of the Middle Ages, and partly because they were anonymous, even many Sunni thinkers admired them and drew from their ideas. So in this way Ismaili thinkers and ideas have had a major impact on all corners of the Islamic faith and its intellectual tradition. The Fatimids were one of the most major empires in the history of the Islamic world, having a major impact on its trajectory. Not only did it obviously shape the world of Shi'ism by giving one of its major branches full political power, but it also shaped the Sunni world. It is in large part because of the power of the Fatimids on both a political and Religious intellectual level that we see major Sunni institutions and figures start to develop a kind of Sunni orthodoxy that didn't really exist in the same way before. Figures like uh, Abu Hamid al Ghazali, for example, very important for the formulation of what we know as Sunni orthodoxy today. Right? He he writes all of his works. His whole sort of project is partly based on trying to refute the power of the Ismailis to say that oh, we need to make sure we know who we are right we need to draw the boundaries of what sunnism is to differentiate it from from the shis from the ismailis right so the fatimids and the ismailis are very important in that sense for the very creation of this idea of of sunni islam as we know it today This period is often called the Sunni Revival, but in many ways it's almost really like the birth of Sunnism as we know it because this is the first time that all these different schools of Sunni uh, law, for example, start to see each other as part of a single whole, which was not necessarily the case before. We should probably spend a dedicated episode to exploring the Fatimid Caliphate in particular, but it is certainly a major part of Ismaili history. The Fatimids are known for having sponsored and helped art forms like architecture, art, music, and science flourish. Minority groups like Christians and Jews were generally treated with a relatively open attitude and treated well in Fatimid society. The Fatimids also founded the city of Cairo, Al-Qahira in Arabic, as their capital, a role that that city cannot kind of retains even to this day. They also founded and built the Al-Azhar Mosque, or university, which ironically has become perhaps the most major center of learning for Sunni Islam to this day. In short, the Fatimids had a major impact on the Islamic world while representing the high point of Ismaili political influence. The caliph imams of the Ismailis ruled from the early 10th century until 1171, when the empire was overthrown by the famous Salahuddin, or Saladin. But even while in political power, the Ismailis were of course not immune to the many schisms that often appeared uh, regarding the succession line of the Imams. Towards the end of the Fatimid Empire there appeared many such debates over who the rightful successor was, who the next Imam was supposed to be to a certain Caliph Imam for example. After the rule of the 18th Imam and the 8th Fatimid Caliph, Al-Mustansir Billah, there was another split some of whom believed that his rightful successor was the older son Nizar who was according to them robbed of the throne by his brother Al-Musta'li who became actually became the next caliph Thus, we see the Ismailis being split into two more branches the Nizari Ismailis and those who followed Al Mustali, which eventually turned into the group known as the Taibi Ismailis, which today is represented by communities like the Dawoodi Boras and Alavi Boras in India, as well as the so called Suleimanis in Yemen. For a third discussion of the Taibi Ismailis in particular, you can check out an earlier episode that I've dedicated specifically to that, but for Most of history since then, the other group, the so-called Nizari Ismailis, have been the majority and for that reason they will kind of be the main focus, even though we will of course touch on the Taibi beliefs and practices later too, but the Nizaris will be the main focus of this episode. But before we continue our exploration of Ismaili history, we should probably get into some of the juicy details about Ismaili belief, philosophy and practice. What is it that makes Ismailism so unique? The Fatimid Empire in the Middle Ages is a very significant period for the intellectual history of Ismailism, uh, partly, of course, because we have many sources from that time, because when the ismailis were given political power, there was a lot more room to develop, uh, well, to... R- To produce writings but also to develop intellectual um, ideas and so on but also because it is at this time that some of the most significant uh, philosophers and scholars in ismaili history appear and shape the uh, the thought world of the ismailis to a major degree indeed the ismailis have carved out a very unique position in islam in terms of their beliefs and philosophy one that is unique even compared with other shi'i branches they share many of the features already discussed with other branches of Shi'ism, such as the prominence of the Imam for all religious matters. It is the Imam who is the true successor to Muhammad, who knows the secrets and true meanings of the Qur'an and thus decides all matters of religious practice and belief based on that internal knowledge. The difference from, say, the 12 is that the Ismailis had an Imam present in the world for a much longer period. In the case of the Nizadis, they still have a living imam today. This means that in the case of the majority of Nizadis, there has always been an imam at the center of the religion who has absolute authority. These imams and these scholars who represent them, often known as dais, missionaries, and in the most exalted examples are called hujats, or proofs, shaped and formed the doctrines of Ismailism, including its unique theology and jurisprudence. To start with the fascinating topic of theology, the Ismailis have a long and deep tradition. Being Muslims, they adhere to the basic teachings of Islam, they are monotheists, believing in one God, and that Muhammad is the final prophet of that God. The uniqueness of Ismaili theology is the strictness of their monotheism. In some ways, you could argue that they are the branch of Islam that have the most rigorous and unforgiving understanding of monotheism. What does this mean? Well, at its core, Ismaili theology heavily adapted the philosophical tradition known as Neoplatonism as the basis for much of its theology. Now, most Muslim intellectuals were influenced by Neoplatonism in some way, but the Ismailis adapted this system to a much larger degree. And in this Neoplatonic understanding of Islam, they identified God with the One at the top of Plotinian metaphysics. For those of you who aren't familiar with this tradition, this means that they see God as an unfathomable oneness or simplicity that transcends all being and non-being or any possible categories that can be humanly conceived. This is a theology that is radically apophatic, a negative theology of the most extreme sort. Apophatic or negative theology means an understanding of God where nothing can be said positively about God. Positive in terms of a positive statement, not like saying something is good, right? If anything, the only things we can say are the things that God are not. For example, God is not limited. He is not ignorant. He is not weak, etc. This apophatic theology is a kind of position or approach associated with many famous figures in history like Maimonides, Thomas Aquinas, as well as many Islamic theologians and philosophers across history. However, the Ismailis go even further in their apophaticism, as we will see. In Islamic theology, there has always been a discussion about God's attributes and qualities. In the Quran, God is described as being powerful, as being merciful, he is hearing, he is seeing, etc. In some ways, this seemed to clash with another basic assumption of Islam, which is the incomparability of God to any creatures or created things. That he's unlike anything in creation or anything that can be conceived. Not only this, but God is also supposed to be the pure one, whose oneness excludes all multiplicity. But all these attributes and names seem to apply a kind of multiplicity in God. If God is the merciful and the powerful, if he has life and knowledge and hearing and seeing, this seems to compromise the simplicity and oneness of God's nature, because they become kind of parts of God, and absolute oneness or simplicity cannot be made up of parts. Because of this, there erupted many theological debates and schools in Islam to figure out just how this seeming paradox worked. Some, such as the so-called hanbalis, choose to accept these statements in the Qur'an about God, however anthropomorphic they may seem, and simply state that we cannot understand just how he has these attributes. It's often a doctrine called bila without how. So they will say that, well, yeah, God has a hand because the Qur'an says that God has a hand, but we cannot understand in what way or in what mode he has that hand. Others, such as the Mu'tazila see these attributes not as parts of God's essence, but as identical to his essence. Think of it like this. God does not have power. He is power. God doesn't have life. He is life, and so on. To them, this maintained the oneness of God's essence without negating the attributes completely. Other schools, such as the mainstream Ash'aris and Maturidi schools in Sunni Islam, basically take the middle position where the attributes are both part and not part of God in some way. The Ismailis, on the other hand, would have none of this. To them, the monotheism, oneness and transcendence of God could not be compromised. To affirm attributes in God is equal to a kind of hidden or subtle polytheism of believing in multiple gods. All Quranic verses that describe God with human categories have to be read metaphorically, even the central attributes like life, knowledge, will, power, hearing, seeing, and speaking. Even the Mu'tazila, who deny the independence of the attributes were guilty of this kind of subtle or hidden polytheism to the Ismailis. Nothing can be said about God, with perhaps the exception of saying that he is, right, as he completely transcends all contingent categories. Here we obviously see their very strong apophaticism, but they go even further by also negating negative statements about God too. One of the most famous and important Ismaili scholars and philosophers in history, Nasir Khosrow, discusses this topic in his al-Hikmatayn, The uh, Union of the Two Wisdoms. Quote, now we have shown clearly on what grounds it is wrong to describe God by such attributes as ignorance, or non-knowledge, and powerlessness, not powerful, not because they are unseemly, but because they are attributes of creatures. As well, that it is also wrong to ascribe the opposites of such attributes, such as knowledge and power to him, glory be to him, he is exalted, on the grounds that these two are creaturely qualities. We cannot describe God with attributes like being powerless, but neither can we describe him as being not powerless, because both these categories are creaturely qualities. It is words used to describe created things, and thus cannot be true of God, who completely transcends all such connections. And because any such description would compromise his oneness or utter simplicity. This is thus a kind of double negative theology, the most radical of its sorts in the Islamic tradition. God is not wise, but neither is he not wise. It is a collapse of all attempts at understanding the nature of God in order to keep him totally exalted and transcendent above created things. To the Ismailis, this is the only proper way that God can be approached according to the principles of reason or aql in Arabic, which is a central part of religion to them. Accepting the reality of God's attributes in the way that other schools did was, according to them, akin to this kind of hidden or subtle polytheism, and the Ismaili thinkers often call out other schools as being precise to that, as being anthropomorphists and literalists. If you know your Neoplatonic philosophy, you'll recognize a lot of this stuff. The way that the Ismailis talk about the complete... Um, apophatic nature of God is basically the same way that Plotinus and the Neoplatonist talks about the so-called one right? the tohen in in Greek and the Ismailis also adapt many other aspects of the Neoplatonic system the philosophy of Neoplatonism associated with figures like Plotinus particularly has at its core an idea that reality uh, emanates Right? it starts at this concept of the one, tohen this utter apophatic darkness that cannot be understood that is utter simplicity from which everything emanates or emerges and the first thing that emanates from this one is something called the nous in greek which is often translated with things like intellect is the most popular translation but it can also be translated things like mind uh, consciousness sometimes it's a very difficult uh, word to translate because none of those terms really captures what it means uh, but it has Affinities with all of those concepts in English, right? And this nous, or intellect, then emanates something called the universal soul. Uh, and the soul, in this case, then also emanates or creates, uh, not creates, but it, 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 from the soul, the world of nature and the world as we know it comes to be, right? The, the four elements, the, the world in terms of a temporal, physical place. With various modifications and variations, this is the basic system and, and idea behind a neoplatonic metaphysics. In Ismaili theology, God is, as we've seen, identified with the One, which emanates or originates the intellect and so on. The intellect, called aql in Arabic, is seen in different ways in Ismailism, but is often identified with the prophetic light, the nur muhammadiyya, or the knowledge on which all prophecy and revelation is based, as we will see. It is identified with the speech, kalam, of God, or in Qur'anic terminology with the pen, the qallam, which writes on the tablet, the law, which is then identified with the universal soul. In Arabic, the soul is referred to as the nafs al-kulli or nafs al-kulliya. Other Qur'anic terms for these concepts include identifying the intellect with the throne or arsh of God and the universal soul with the footstool, the so-called kursi. From this soul, the tablet in chronic terms, is created the universe as we know it. But the Ismailis also made some unique innovations to Neoplatonic philosophy. For example, aside from the basic structure of the one intellect soul, the Ismaili thinkers also added the category of God's command, Amr, in between God himself as the originator, Mubdia, and the intellect, aql we do find a similar idea in Plotinus and earlier Neoplatonic thinkers, which is often referred to in English as the uh, pre noetic efflux, right? It's this kind of concept in between the one and the nous, which is kind of part of the nous or intellect, but also not. It's, it's a difficult thing. In any case, this command is a primordial origination that seemed to help separate God in his absolute form from anything that is originated from him. According to the scholar Farhad Daftari, quote, Hence, God is the originator, or the Mubdi, and his command or word act as an intermediary between him and his creation. The universal intellect, aql, is the first originated being, al mubdal al also called simply the first, al-Awl, and the preceder, as sabiq since the amr, or logos, is united with it in existence. The intellect is eternal, motionless, and perfect, both potentially and actually. It corresponds to the number 1, and in keeping with the Neoplatonic tradition, it is called the source of all light. From the intellect proceeds through emanation, the soul, or the universal soul, also referred to as the second, Athani, and the follower Atali, corresponding to the Psyche of the Neoplatonists. But not everyone agreed with this. For example, the Ismaili philosopher Hamid ad-Din Kirmani, one of the most important scholars of the Fatimid era, rejected this concept of the Amr as an intermediary and also adapted a system of ten intellects descending from the One to the created world, perhaps influenced by philosophers like al-Farabi. This almost Gnostic system came to have a major importance in Taibi Ismailism in particular, but not as much for other branches. And this is important to remember, that Ismaili thought and philosophy is not something static. There isn't a particular set of beliefs that they all held or hold, but the scholarly tradition of Ismailism is always an ongoing discussion and development, led by the scholars and imams even to this day. But all these neoplatonic features and theological tendencies, of course, have a major impact on things like prophecy and revelation. Now, The Ismailis agree with all other Muslims that the Qur'an is a manifestation of the speech of God, but they also have a pretty unique perspective on prophecy and revelation. Because God is completely transcendent beyond creaturely qualities, he cannot speak in the sense of words. Using the Neoplatonic model, it is the intellect that is identified as the speech of God, but this is a non-verbal speech. It is simply an unfathomable consciousness, or mind perhaps, which contains all of God's knowledge. Now, in the Qur'an, there is this concept known as the Umm al-Kitab, the mother of the book, which is seen as a kind of heavenly archetype of revelation, including for the Qur'an. And again, to the Ismailis, the Umm al-Kitab is interpreted to mean the intellect in Neoplatonic terms. This means that what the Prophet does, including Muhammad, is not that he is given literal words by an angel that is received directly from God. Instead, the Prophet is given revelation through a, quote, light that descends upon his heart. He doesn't receive words as such, but is rather given a kind of vision or direct correspondence with the intellect, with the um Umm al-Kitab of Quranic terms, the source for all divine knowledge. It is then the Prophet himself that formulates that non-verbal revelation, or speech, into actual words and sentences that are relevant to the community he speaks to. In other words, the Prophet is here given a much larger role in the process of revelation. The Qur'an is still the speech of God, or the manifestation of the speech of God, but the words themselves are the inspired words of the prophets as they interpret the non-verbal revelation into a human language. This is indeed a rather unique perspective on revelation, one that is quite distinct from other theories by other schools and branches of Islam, but it does lead to many other significant ideas and points within Ismaili thought. Because the Prophet plays such an important role in the formulation of the text of the Quran itself, that also means that he plays a much more major role in the interpretation and implementation of that scripture um, to the community, so to say. Being the so-called walking Quran, the Prophet Muhammad is the only one who knows the true, inner, actual meanings of the Quranic chapters and verses. And very importantly, especially to Islam, that knowledge or ilm of the actual meanings of the Quran is then given specifically to Ali, the first imam of the Shi'is, and then the knowledge is handed down from Ali to the next imam, who hands it down to the next imam, and so on. Thus, this helps explain further why the Imams are so significant to the Shi'is, and to the Ismailis in particular, because they hold the keys to the true understandings of the Qur'an. Because the Prophet is the only one who knows these true understandings, and that knowledge is then transmitted through this line of Imams. So the Imam is the only person who can truly interpret the Qur'an properly, and sort of apply it to new situations. And, and, and this was true of all prophets. Just like other Muslims, the Ismailis believed that various prophets had been sent to mankind across history with essentially the same message or truth. In particular, the Ismailis divided history into seven eras or periods. Each new era or cycle is started or inaugurated by a speaker prophet, a natiq, a messenger who brings a new revelation, and especially a new religious law, or sharia, that replaces the law of the previous messenger. These six speaker prophets are Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and lastly, Muhammad, whose era is the current one and whose sharia is in place currently. Each such prophet also has a succeeding line of imams that is responsible for keeping the message of that prophet and his law alive. So, for example, the figure of Job was one of the imams of the prophetic era of Abraham, and John the Baptist was the last imam in the era of Moses before the prophethood of Jesus. The imams of Muhammad, the sixth speaker prophet, was Ali and the succeeding line from his progeny, as we have seen. The seventh and last cycle will be inaugurated by al-Qa'im, a messianic figure who will bring the day of resurrection. But often in Ismailism, this is interpreted esoterically, not to mean the actual end of the world, but the start of a new phase of spiritual revolution, when the outer forms of the Sharia, or Islamic law, associated with Muhammad, will be replaced by a revealing of the truths, haqa'iq, of religion when the esoteric true meanings of faith and law is revealed and the community lives in a heightened spiritual state, no longer in need of an outer sharia to access the inner meanings and truths. And this concept of the hidden meanings or secrets of revelation is a cornerstone of Ismaili beliefs. It is often thought that the Qur'an contains outer literal meanings, called zahir, as well as hidden or esoteric meanings, batin. Most schools of Islam have some concept of these categories, but the Shi'is are unique in that they have always put a major emphasis on that second aspect, the batin or esoteric aspects of scripture and religion, that there are hidden meanings, the true meanings, in fact, in scripture, that can be interpreted using a technique known as ta'wil, which is usually translated simply as esoteric interpretation. This ta'wil or esoteric interpretation Naturally, it must always be done by, or at least supervised and taught by, the living imam, who is the only one that holds the key to the Quran's true interpretations. Indeed, the Shi'i imams are often seen as the original source of all esoteric teachings in Islam, including many aspects associated with Sufism and otherwise. Imams like Jafar as sadiq are given a central role as transmitters of esoteric and occult knowledge and as affirming the importance of... Tawil, or esoteric interpretation. Jafar al Sadiq himself is thought to have said quote, The Book of God comprises four things the statement set down, the implied purport, the hidden meanings related to the supersensible world, and the exalted spiritual doctrines. Haqqaiq. The Imams are often given an almost metaphysical role to play in reality. They are the pole around which the world turns, and there can never be a time when there is not an imam living, whether he is manifest or in hiding, as he sometimes is. The imams are sometimes associated with the amr, or command, of God, that intermediary concept between God and creation, or at least between God and the first uh, creation, which would be the intellect. They are indeed seen, together with the prophets whose religion they represent, as intermediaries between the believers and God, as kind of intercessory figures to which one can turn to address God. Now, some critics of Ismailism will often accuse them of worshipping the Imams, of saying that the Imam is God and directing prayers towards the Imam. This, however, isn't entirely accurate. Arguably, it is a theological question that can be approached from different perspectives, but in the general sense, the Ismailis do not see the Imam as God or as an incarnation or manifestation of God. There have been some groups in history, considered extreme by the majority, that have given the Imams an unusually exalted position, even seeing them as things like the manifestation of God in some way. But for mainstream Ismailism and most Ismailis in the world, this is not the case. The imam can sometimes be described as a manifestation of the light of God, of his nur, and a mirroring of the command of God. He is never an incarnation or has any identity with God as such. He is not a mirror of God in himself, but a mirroring of the divine command, Amr, and sometimes the first intellect. And this makes a significant difference. Remember, the Ismailis were very adamant to keep God entirely transcendent beyond any creaturely connections. And so to claim in some way that the Imam is God or an incarnation of God or a mirroring of God, that would completely go against that fundamentally central aspect of Ismaili theology, it makes no sense. You can consult my earlier episode in this series on the Twelver Shi'is for more information about the role of the imams in Shi'ism more generally. The imams are the custodians, the ausiyah of Muhammad's revelation and the carriers and source of esoteric knowledge. It is only those initiated into the community, led by the true imam of the time, that has access to the true interpretation of Islam and of reality really this emphasis on esotericism is common across shi'i islam in general but particularly so for the ismailis the ismailis have often put a huge emphasis on the batin right the inner the hidden aspects of of the quran of revelation and religion uh, but also the hidden aspect of reality you know just the, all these esoteric aspects are hugely characteristic of ismailism in particular so much so that many people across history often people who have criticized them also have referred to the ismailis as the al right the people uh, can roughly be translated as the esoterics basically how does this show itself well we have already seen some examples the way that the Ismailis interpret Quranic concepts to be equivalent or actually referring to much more abstract, in this case Neoplatonic, philosophical concepts or realities is one such example. But there is more. Every religious ritual or practice, such as prayer, fasting, or pilgrimage, have inner esoteric meanings. In the example of the daily prayers, Nasir Husro says, quote, the exterior meaning of ritual prayer is the worship of god with the body by advancing towards the qibla of bodies which is the kaaba the house of god the exalted in mecca the esoteric interpretation ta'wil ibatin, of the ritual prayer is the worship of god with the rational soul by turning in the quest for knowledge of the book and the law towards the qibla of spirits which is god's house which is a house in which god's knowledge resides the Imam of truth. Each movement of the body in prayer as well as all other aspects of it are related to esoteric teachings and numbers in relation to Ismaili teachings. And this is also true of Quranic verses and stories. We find many examples across history of Quranic stories and and parts of the Quran that are uh, interpreted allegorically and esoterically by various thinkers within Ismailism, using the technique of ta'wil, right of esoteric interpretation. Another one of the key figures in Ismaili history, Al Qadi Abu Hanifa Ibn Muhammad Al numan was an Arabic scholar and jurist who worked under some of the earliest Fatimid Caliph Imams. He will return in our later discussion about jurisprudence too, but he was also a significant figure when it comes to philosophy and the doctrine of esoteric interpretation. In his work entitled Asas al-Ta'wil, Foundations of Esoteric Interpretation, he offers definitions for how this process works, as well as some fascinating examples. Quote, Almighty God made the Qur'an's external form, zahir, the miracle of his messenger and its inner meaning, batin, the miracle of the imams from the people of his household, ahl al-bayt. It cannot be found with anyone but them, and none can produce the like of it save them, just as none can produce the like of the external form of the book save their grandfather Muhammad, the messenger of God. Only the imams from his progeny can expound its inner meanings, and this knowledge is passed on and inherited in their lineage and entrusted to them. He then goes on to interpret different stories from the Quran in esoteric ways. The birth of Jesus, one of the great messengers, is taken to mean the beginning of his dawah, or mission, led by the imams that succeed him. Furthermore, the story about Job is interpreted in symbolic ways too. According to this reading, Job is one of the imams in the prophetic cycle of Abraham, responsible for leading the dawah, or mission, of his religion. In this story, though, the pharaoh at the time has led Job's followers away from the true religion, and the story of how the devil kills Job's family becomes a metaphor for this. Quote, the ta'wil of Iblis is Job's adversary during this time. His murdering the children is his diversion of those who had accepted Job's da'wah. The worms are a symbol of those who responded to Job's da'wah and then betrayed him. Their eating of his flesh refers to their consumption of his knowledge, though they were never like him in kind or form. We see similar kinds of interpretations in the writings of Nasir Khosrow. Here the story of Noah and the Ark contains the esoteric confirmation of the imamate. Noah's ark is not a thing of wood, but the prophet's household. Noah's flood is not of water, but instead of ignorance and waywardness. Even things like the day of resurrection, hell, and paradise are ultimately seen as metaphors. They are not literal places, but symbolic references to spiritual states of the soul. Quote, if it is asked what is paradise, we reply that it is a world of spirits and a mine of delights. And if it is asked what is hell, we say that it is a mine of agonies and torments. If it is asked what the gathering is, the day of judgment, we reply that it is the assembly of particular souls in the presence of the universal soul. Notice the very strong neoplatonic features of these esoteric interpretations. These are just a few examples of how ta'wil or esoteric interpretation, and the batin, hidden aspects of religion work according to the Ismailis. All aspects of reality have a zahir and a batin, an outer manifest part and an inner esoteric part. Humans have an outer body and an inner soul. There is an outer imam in the world, but also the inner imam or guide, which is often identified with the aql, or in this case reason, of human beings. The word aql is very difficult, and it's used in different ways, as we've seen. It is the name for the metaphysical intellect, but also a more general term for human reason, as it is used here. Because reason has always played a major role to Ismaili thinkers. Religion must be understood through the tool of reason, through rational deduction and correct understanding, as taught by the imams, of course. The Ismailis would criticize many other groups of Muslims who they believed had fallen into literalism and ignorance instead of emphasizing the importance of reason and investigation for understanding the world and religion. Reason and revelation are in fact compatible. Not only compatible, but intimately connected. This can be seen from the simple fact that the Ismailis have such a deep and developed intellectual and philosophical tradition and the different ways that they have employed that. And to some degree, the same can also be said for Ismaili jurisprudence. Indeed, the Ismaili understanding of the Islamic law, the Sharia, is also rather unique and fascinating. Now, The Ismailis are often accused of having abandoned the Sharia, or of having no Sharia at all, and this is not really true. The Ismailis do see themselves very much as following the Sharia of the Prophet Muhammad, they simply have a different understanding of the foundation of that law, and the ways that it can transform and change as a result of that foundation. We must here again stress the importance of the Imam. The imams or imamit plays such a major role in all aspects of Shi'ism, including in law and jurisprudence. Having the only true access to the esoteric meanings of religion and its correct interpretation, the imams are the ultimate source of practice as well as belief. This is not to the detriment of the Qur'an or the Sunnah of the Prophet. Those two are still at the core of Ismaili practice, but the imams embody the Sunnah and the message of the Qur'an. It is they who know what its true messages are and can thus interpret and apply it to different circumstances. When we talk about the Sharia of the Ismailis, we don't just mean law in the modern common sense. Sharia in Islam includes all practical aspects of living, from how to pray, how to treat other people, how to fast, etc. It is the practical aspects of religion, simply put. And an Ismaili jurisprudence was first clearly formulated in the Fatimid era. Before, there was no systematized law in that way. The Ismailis would have followed the common practice of any land that they found themselves in, or simply followed the rulings of the current Imam. But with the sudden access to political power and no longer having to be in hiding, performing so-called taqiyya, the Ismailis could now formulate their own tradition of law. This development is primarily associated with a figure we've already met in this discussion, al-Qadi nu he was a North African figure who studied law, history, and philosophy, and at some point accepted the Ismaili creed and started working for the Fatimids. He worked as a chief qadi or judge and as the central legal authority for the first four caliph imams, particularly under the rule of the caliph imam al-Mu'iz. And in collaboration with him, he wrote some of the central works of Ismaili jurisprudence, primarily a work known as the Daim al-Islam, the Pillars of Islam. In these works, he established a method of jurisprudence that is rather unique and can appear very strict. In this Ismaili law, there is no room for ijtihad or the independent reasoning, ra'i, of individual jurists, as was common in Sunni Islam. This was in fact a great calamity that had led the Sunnis down the wrong path, according to al-Norman and the Ismailis. He writes, quote, Those jurists followed their whims without guidance from God, and they produced new rulings originating with themselves regarding the religion of God. They contradicted the Book of God and the speech of the Messenger of God. Instead, the only sources for Ismaili practice should be three. The Quran, the Sunnah of the Prophet, and the rulings of the Imams. The scholar Agostino Silardo writes, quote, the Fatimids did not accept the use of reasoning and deduction in tafsir and fiqh because of the value that the Shi'is placed on the use of sources. Since the Imam was the depository of our learning, it was in close collaboration with him that the Supreme Qadi, in his function as official faqih of the dynasty, wrote treatises on fiqh. Thus, al-Nu'man consulted al-Mu'izz regularly while composing his main theological works. Al-Nu'man himself said, quotes, A Qadi, judge, should decide in accordance with the Book of God, and what he does not find in the Book of God, he should seek it in what is established from the Prophet of God and the Imams from his progeny. If he has no knowledge about it, or that he does not find it, he should refer it to the Imam and inquire from him about it, and he should not decide depending on his individual judgment or analogical deduction or discretionary preferences. This stands in great contrast to Ismaili attitude towards philosophy and theology, where aql or intellect, reason was very much uh, encouraged. Right? In terms of law, we see the opposite, at least here in the Fatimid era, right? Nonetheless, this became kind of the standard for Ismaili jurisprudence going forward, at least in the Middle Ages. Um, even today, the Taibi Ismailis in particular still very much base their jurisprudence on the writings of Qadi nur and the, the principles that he lays down in works like the Ayam al-Islam. Especially since this branch of Ismailism do not have a living imam present in the world today that can guide them in terms of uh, questions of law and practice. As for the majority of Ismailis, the so-called Nizaris, which is the main focus of this episode, things are quite a bit different because indeed the Nizaris have had a living present imam from you know, from the beginning, at least according to themselves, from Muhammad all the way until today. To return thus to our historical narrative, the crumbling of the Fatimid state saw the division of Ismaili Shiism into the Taibis in Yemen and eventually India, and the Nizaris. The Nizaris managed to establish a new kind of state in Iran and Syria, under the leadership of the very famous Hassan al-Sabah, who led the community from the mountain fortress of Alamut and became famous for their political strategy of sending out agents to assassinate their opponents. The Nizaris of this period were given the name Assassins by later chroniclers and has become very famous since then, among other things serving as the basis for the Assassin's Creed series of video games. For a more thorough look into the Nizaris of the Alamut period and the assassins, check out my full episode dedicated to that topic. But eventually, this period also saw the emergence of new Imams, descendants of the Imam Nizar who had been deposed as Fatimid Caliph. And these Imams in Alamut would establish some of the key features of Nizari Ismailism in particular. One very important concept for this group is what is known as ta'lim. This is a doctrine that essentially doubles down on the imam's exclusive access to divine truth. The imam had absolute authority to make new rulings and even to change rulings by earlier imams because he had, after all, perfected knowledge and can reinterpret things according to the needs of the time. In the words of the scholar Khalil Andani, quote, The Ismaili Imam of any given time period has the full authority and right to interpret Islam, implement religious laws, institute or abrogate religious practices, and give socio-political guidance as he sees most appropriate for the current circumstances, even if that guidance contradicts that of a prior Imam. And this certainly becomes relevant in the Alamut period, when the Imam Hassan al-Dikr salam claimed that the Qiyamah, or resurrection, had happened. If you remember, the Ismailis believed that there would come a Qa'im to inaugurate the resurrection, esoterically understood to mean a time when the truths, or haqa'iq, of the religion was revealed to the community and they no longer had to abide by the outer aspects of the Sharia, or Islamic practice. That isn't to say that they thus didn't have any practices at all, but that these practices were more inwardly or spiritually focused rather than physical. And that's precisely what Hassan did. Although it seems that most Ismailis still practiced the regular Islamic rituals, especially in Syria, which was somewhat isolated from the fortress in Iran, but it was a significant shift. The Nizariis had now entered a new era of history where they had access to the esoteric truths through the guidance of the imam. But strangely, only two imams later, under the imamate of Jalal ad-Din Hassan, this seems to have been reversed. Instead, Jalal ad-Din seems to have turned towards Sunnism for a kind of reconciliation. He told his followers to start practicing the outer law again, and even invited Sunni Shafi scholars to teach them the practices of Sunni law. So what was going on here? On the principle of ta'lim, these rulings were largely accepted by the community. The imam must have had a good reason to do what he did. But Ismailis also generally see this as a form of taqiyya. The idea is that the Shi'is can hide their identity and outwardly seem and practice like Sunnis, for example, to avoid persecution. But why now, all of a sudden? The answer probably lies in the oncoming invasion of the Mongol armies. Imam Jalal Hasan's reversal of the Qiyama policy and turn towards Sunnism was probably a way, through taqiyya to help unify the Muslims in a general sense against the incoming Mongols. This didn't help too much though, because in 1256, the Mongols managed to conquer Alamut and all the other mountain fortresses, destroying the libraries and buildings there and even executing the ruling imam. After this time, the history of Nizadi Ismailism is a bit more obscure and uncertain. It is clear that the community survived in various locations, but the imam seemed to have been in a long period of hiding outwardly appearing as leaders of a Sufi order, the Ni'matullahi order, while keeping their true identity as Ismaili imams a secret. That is, until the reemergence of the imamate in the 19th century with the Aga Khan. After this, the imams of the Nizari Ismailis have been this line of figures with the title Aga Khan. Their current imam is Aga Khan IV, or Shah Karim al-Husseini having a line of Imams throughout history and especially considering the doctrine of Ta'aleem, the Nizari Ismailis have of course been very varied as a result of this in terms of practice and belief. The legal precedents of figures like Al-Qadi and Uman, while important of course, have not played as major of a role in Nizari Ismailism because the living present Imams have always shaped and reshaped the principles of Ismaili practice in different ways. For example, Aga Khan III ended the period of Taqiyya and reinstated the qiyamah or Resurrection. But what are those practices on a more concrete level? Ismaili practice involves daily prayers, just like for all Muslims. For the Taibis this means the 5 Salah prayers, just like for Sunnis and 12 Rashis. For the Nazadis, however, this has been replaced by a prayer called simply the Dua, which means a prayer, and which is done 3 times a day rather than 5. The Nizaris also tend to pray in a building called the Jamaat Khana rather than in a mosque. Because the outer ritualistic form of the Muhammadan Sharia has been deemed abrogated by the Nizari imams, meaning that the true esoteric meanings of these practices have been revealed, they are often interpreted or performed esoterically. This means that the Nizaris don't have to fast during Ramadan, but should always be in a state of esoteric fasting or staying away from sin and bad behaviour. They also don't have to do the pilgrimage to Mecca, but instead an esoteric kind of pilgrimage. But of course they are allowed to, and many do still perform these traditional exoteric practices of the religion. Charity or zakat is also still important to the Nizari Ismailis, and the current Imam, the Aga Khan, is responsible for a lot of charity work around the world. The Nizadis pay their zakat to the Imam, rather than directly to charity, and it is then the responsibility of the Imam to distribute that money to the benefit of the community and for various charities around the world. The Ismailis argue that this was the function of the zakat originally, a religious tax paid to Muhammad and the early caliphs, and that it only later developed into a kind of donation of charity. Some historical research also actually seemed to point in that same direction. Since the Ismailis are Shi'is, they also perform many rituals that they share with other branches of that community in particular. Perhaps most central of these is the commemoration of the third Imam, al Hussein, who was martyred by Umayyad forces in Karbala in 680. This commemoration or period of mourning takes place during the month of Muharram and is known as Ashura. During Ashura, various rituals are performed to remember and mourn the death of Hussein and his family. The current community of Nizadi Ismailis make up a unique form of Islam in the world. The leadership of the Aga Khans and the reunification of the community happened only in the last century or so. The current Aga Khan, as well as his predecessor, has become major players on the world scene, not only working to unify the Ismaili community, but also spearheading a number of international organizations dedicated to charity, education and study. There is the Aga Khan Development Network that focuses on developments in poor areas of Africa and Asia. There is also the Aga Khan University, with locations in places like London, and of course the Institute for Ismaili Studies, dedicated to studying Ismaili history and belief in general. The Aga Khan has emphasized that Nizari Ismailis adhere to modern and progressive values, including things like gender equality. His understanding of the Quran and the principles of Islam leads him to this conclusion, and the general aspects of modern Nizari Ismailism is of course a direct result of the doctrine of the Imamate and things like ta'alim, where the Imam holds absolute power and authority to determine religious principles. The Ismaili Shi'is make up a significant community within Islam today. It is estimated that there are around 15 million Ismailis worldwide. The vast majority of these are Nizāris, but the Tāibis are also in respectable numbers, perhaps between one to two million adherents. Together, they make up the second largest branch of Shi'ism within the even larger religion of Islam. As we've seen from this historical overview they have always represented a unique form of Islam, a uh, very uh, intellectually, philosophically and particularly esoterically oriented form of that religion. It has produced some of the greatest and most significant philosophers and thinkers in Islamic history and also been at the center of some of the greatest empires and political movements in the history of the Middle East. They make up an important part of the tapestry of the Islamic world historically and today. And by now, I hope you have become a little more familiar with this fascinating tradition. You can check out some of my earlier content on Ismailism to dive deeper into particular movements or particular thinkers, sometimes even within that tradition. I would like to thank the scholar Khalil Andani for assisting me with the script. Uh, It's been a huge help to have an actual expert on Ismailism, one of the greatest experts on that tradition in in the whole world currently. So I very much appreciate that. If anyone wants to uh, know more about this topic, then you should definitely check out Khalil's uh, research, as well as a YouTube channel that he has under his own name, Khalil Andani. I will leave links to that in the description, and I will see you next time.